What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Medici Family Circus, where anything is possible and miracles happen. And now, introducing our world-famous Flying Elephant. What kind of miracle would it require for Tim Burton's Dumbo to surpass the 1941 Disney original? Two things. The original Disney is, you know, just okay. It's all right. And Tim Burton can do anything, Michael. Uh, Dark Shadows? Okay, you've got a point there. This week, we've got a review of Burton's Dumbo, plus the top five movie circus acts, and your Film Spotting Madness Final Four. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. Adam is out of town this week, so my guest is none other than Mr. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Hello, Michael. Thank you for the Mr., Josh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to pass that along to Sam. He dropped that in the script. I don't know how you've been elevated to Mr., but... Uh, And also none other. That was me. I I think that's a backhanded compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Just put them together. It's a compliment, Michael. (laughs) We can't wait to hear which film spotting madness matchups have been keeping you up nights. I know when this tournament comes around every year, you just wrestle with the choices. You love that we do this, pitting all these films against each other. I do. When I have my little midnight snack of apples and oranges, you know, two things that really shouldn't be compared to each other. I, you know, I think this, that's the perfect snack for this particular tradition yes. here on Film Spotting. Agreed. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Film Spotting Madness. Listeners all know this, but as a reminder, and maybe for some newcomers, it is our annual 64 film March Madness style tournament. We're going to continue this week with the Elite Eight matchups. Of course, we're wrestling this year, Michael, over the best films of the 2000s. Mm. So in the Elite Eight, listeners have been voting between No Country for Old Men and the Royal Tenenbaums. That Mm. was one matchup. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus Mulholland Drive. Mm, Tough. There Will Be Blood versus Children of Men. Mm. And then The Dark Knight versus... Nuri Bilgajelan's climates. Oh, climates got in there. That's so, that's so great. The Turkish, the Turkish brigade turned out for a personal favorite of yours. Yeah, I know. Personal uh, favorite. Yeah. No, sorry. To, just a practical joke on you there, Michael. No climates in the tournament. Damn I'm it. afraid. <laughs> so we will get to the actual matchups later in the show. Plus, Michael and I are going to share our top five movie circus acts. I'm not sure how your strongman act is going to play for radio, Michael. We'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. Before all that. Michael and I just came from the Big Top, well, AMC River East Theaters, where we took in an early screening of Disney's Dumbo. Is it one of the most spectacular wonders of the Earth? He doesn't look like magic to me. Your children need you to believe in them. Come on! 
Yes, Tim Burton is back taking another very familiar property and giving it the special Burton touch. I guess we can debate how special that touch still is, Michael. He's done this a couple of times now in his career. Uh, the property here is 1941's animated film, Dumbo from Disney. The twist this time, well, there's not really much of one. Screenwriter Aaron Kruger essentially spends the first 45 minutes of this Dumbo, which is live action, very heavy on CGI, obviously, especially when it comes to the title character. But he spends the first 45 minutes essentially giving us the original movie. We march through the beats with a few twists here and there. Foremost among them, a new character played by Colin Farrell, a returning World War I vet, previously worked at the circus, run by Danny DeVito's ringmaster. His name is Holt Farrier. He went off to war, has come back, lost an arm in the conflict, also lost his wife while he was away. We learned she died from the flu. Influenza. Influenza. Yes. 1919, this is. Uh, As did many of the other members of this circus troupe, she left behind two young children who are there waiting for his return. So this broken family is at the heart of the story and an obvious mirror, of course, to the baby elephant who is born and separated from his mother, Dumbo. Now, Michael, we came out of this screening, and I don't think as opposed to last week where Adam and I had uh, not very long to process Jordan Peele's Us, Mm -hmm. and we panicked a little bit under that pressure. (laughs) You and I are also coming from the screening. I I don't think we feel quite the same pressure to figure Dumbo out as quickly. And as a matter of fact, you seemed pretty decisive. We were riding the elevator (laughs) with a couple people who were in the screening, and one of them just asked you, did you like it? And you offered a very emphatic no. No. <laughs> Care to elaborate? I think I. <laughs> I think that it speaks for itself, Josh. <laughs> That's all you can have we, to can say. We please move on to the next segment. <laughs> Let's give it a little more a time. Little more. I will try. Yeah, I will yeah. try to. Uh, I don't know if I will say I'm going to offer a defense no. of Dumbo, but I will try to highlight maybe a few grace notes that will leaven that emphatic no. Right. Oh, good. But, well, no. There's lots. But tell to me ta- your first there's reaction. There's lots to talk about because because and we should figure out. Are, I think uh, why some of these animation to live action adaptations that Disney has got in its pipeline, uh, I mean, my God, they, we're, we're going to be riddled with these. The next two up are Guy Ritchie's version of Aladdin, which to me, the idea of Guy Ritchie doing Aladdin. Seems a little strange. A little, my, probably my least favorite director alive right now. But uh, but who knows? Who knows? You know, hope springs occasional. Yes, um, this is true. And then beyond that, you know, the Lion King, John Favreau, who actually scored a pretty solid success and a huge financial success with his live action version of The Jungle Book. Uh, he's got The Lion King coming up this summer. So that's the next two. They've done several already. They have a dozen more, literally almost a dozen in the pipeline, including everything from Mulan to, you know, who knows what. Um, uh, and and here we have Tim Burton giving Dumbo a shot. Now, I would disagree with you on whether or not it's it's all that 
if it really bears almost any resemblance to the old 1941 animated version. Because, I mean, just factually, before we get into opinion, you got, you know, this movie's twice as long. Dumbo ran 62, 63 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, it was basically a musical. It had six or seven songs, good ones. That's true. Uh, that you hear here and there, and Baby Mine gets a, gets a good, prominent place. Not a highlight. Never liked that song anyway. Uh, oh. So you have oh. twice the length. You know, it's not really a musical anymore. Uh, and then just in terms of story description, I'm keeping the opinion out of it for now. Okay. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to lay my case factually. Okay? Yes. Sure. Uh, no talking animals this time. You don't have the wisecracking sort of Brooklynese mouse who was Dumbo's main friend in the, in the old 41 version. There's some so, misdirection there. We see a mouse early on, but yes. it turns out doesn't talk, right. isn't really a major character. No, no they don't talk. Um, one of the big changes, though, Josh, and I seriously think the movie wrestles with this in all the wrong ways. How do you make a movie about trained circus elephants at a time when Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey have been shut down, out of business, you know, and I'm fine with that, you know, because I think trained, you know, basically all the animal abuse or whatever, PETA and everybody else has been sort of charging, you know, with circus uh, circuses all, for decades now. Um, uh, you know, all that all that's belongs to a very different time. And this story remains set in the past, in yes. fact, further back than the 1941 version, because it is, as you say, right after World War I. Um, how do you deal with this whole question of, of, of captive circus elephants without just sort of making it seem like utter cruelty, right? Mm. Now, that may sound like liberal weenie whining or something like that, but this, this movie, you know, I guess honestly or somewhat sincerely tries to wrestle with this question of how are you going to retell this story that way? And then, as you say, the, the, the main inventions, and there's a ton of them because it's all these new characters that were introduced uh, by the screenwriter Aaron Kruger, um, for this version, you know, we have we have DeVito's circus people, this kind of motley, multi-ethnic crew. Um, you have Michael Keaton as the sort of proto-Walt Disney who's got this, you know, huge Coney Island sort of circus, attra- not a circus attraction, but an amusement park uh, that's called Dreamland. It really is meant to evoke this weird steampunk early, you yeah. know, early 20th century version of the later 20th century, you know, Disneyland or mm-hmm. Disney World, right? Yeah. And of course, he's the main adversary in this story. So you have you have all this new stuff. And, and I would say every single one of those decisions, Josh, for me, is a compilation of story misjudgments. Doesn't add up to anything. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's what I meant by the first 45 minutes, yes, there are those new characters, but it essentially takes us through all the major plot points of the original Dumbo, from the mother and son's separation to his learning how to fly to the act. It actually condenses the two acts that are in the original Dumbo into Uh, one, and then we seem to be at the, he becomes this famous circus act and we're at the end of the film and I looked at my watch and it was 45 minutes in. Right. Where I would agree with you, the construction doesn't really do anything is that it then shifts into, at this point, Michael Keaton's impresario comes on the scene, buys the circus. Right. And they actually repeat the same narrative, just on a larger scale. Right. He's got to go to New York and prove himself all over again so that, the same Ke- so, that so that Keaton can finance the circus and Alan Arkin plays one of the bankers who's got a supporting role yes. waiting to see if this thing is worth financing. So I would agree with you that it, it's kind of spinning its wheels. Um, at first I thought, oh good, we're going to go in a different direction. It was kind of a neat move to get the original movie out of the way yeah. and then go somewhere new, but it doesn't really go anywhere new. I right. think my difficulty with the movie is if you think about how Burton's films have operated, you have, you know, when he was making grown-up movies and not necessarily adult, but let's just say grown-up movies, something like Edward Scissorhands, um, 
he brought a childlikeness to it that was an interesting wrinkle. It mm. brought an element of wonder. It brought an element of innocence. And it made this movie that had a lot of grown-up themes and serious things in it also seem uh, somehow childlike in a good way. Mm. When he's made some of these kids' films, and this is undoubtedly a kids' film. We're talking about Alice in Wonderland also yeah, for Disney. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland, I would say. Um, now, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I actually like. I know a lot of people don't. But maybe it happens there, too, now that I'm seeing this as a pattern. I think what he does is he doubles down on the childlikeness until it gets curdled into childishness <laughs> and something silly, something obvious. Mm. Um, the humor is inflated larger than it has to be. The The moral themes are nailed down repeatedly and obviously. And my one line for any movie that's aimed at children is my one requirement is that it respects their intelligence first mm. and realizes how smart kids are right. and that they don't need to be spoon fed things, whether it's humor or um, or themes or whatever. And this Dumbo, I think, definitely does that. This is where some of the issues come into play when it deals with the mistreatment of animals. I think the reason it feels so ungainly in that department is because it's going overboard to try and make it clear. And make that, the that, circus kind of woke. Yeah, to make the circus <laughs> yeah. woke, but also like who is the really bad guy here? Yeah. Well, it's the snarling trainer with the whip yeah. or the way Keaton's character and turns out to be in the end. And so – or even a worse sub-character, another trainer of sorts that we meet. It's like everything gets amplified. I agree. I agree. That's and a good point. Down. Look, and down. If you had a problem, and this is this is classic Disney, right? There's, I mean, Walt Disney would not have made his fortune without without wrenching uh, uh, mother uh, son or mother daughter separations, right? Okay, so that's a big part of the Dumbo story in the in the original forty one, and it's, yeah. it it goes right for the throat. It went right for the gonads, I think. I mean, I just saw Dumbo again the first time, no, for the first time in a long time. I've, I put the ago. baby mind sequence in a film spotting top five. I think that one really works. I think it's lovely and the way it juxtaposes with other animals and their young in the animated one. Here, right, right. here well, the you're rendition. Sappy. You're sappy that yeah, way. Well, this is know, true. Yeah. <laughs> but here, the rendition of the song is not very good. On top of that, they just rush right past it. It's yeah. in that first 45 minutes. Right, right. Well, so, okay. So you've got, you in, in this version, Aaron Kruger, the screenwriter, Whose whose credits include three Transformers movies? Okay, red flag right there. Okay, uh, in terms of Transformers, I think they've won Oscars for sound effects, not for screen. Right, right, right. Well, and also in terms of unforced charm, I don't think that's not. But you know, they're not 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 the go to franchise. But you've got instead of just one major mother son separation like the old one, which you know kind of tears your heart out, stomps on it, and then gives it back to you. There's like seven of those in this film, and and Burton it doesn't even seem to have his heart in all mm. in this. Repeated, that's a really good question. Repeated, you know, sort of like, and that's that's the kind of the Dumbo we see in the, this version of of the story is just a constant peril machine. He's he's you know all they're doing is amping up the destruction and the peril and the humiliation for the guy. Yeah, and 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 you don't get anything except just occasional shots of his big eyes, which are the CGI part of this. Whole, right. Well, I mean the, the elephant, the whole elephant is CGI, but it's it's all just. It's all just sort of this mute expression of of of, of story exploitation. It, it is cheesy, and 
and I just feel like Burden's heart is not in it. He's just simply being a good company man here. Well, and I think you know, I'm glad he got. I'm glad he got the payday he got for this thing. But he's not turning out a good movie as a as a return. I want to get back to that. Where might Burton's heart be in this? But let me ask you about those effects. And it's interesting because you're right. Uh, there are talking animals in the original, but right. not Dumbo, right. um, which kind of sidelines him. Even in the original, he's he's sort of a passive figure, he is, or you very don't much really so. get you don't get much of a sense of who Dumbo is. A lot of it is because he doesn't talk. Right. I had the same experience here, and I don't think it was a matter of wanting to be true to the original. Right. I think they really wanted you to have an attachment with this creature, but um, the effects are not bad. I mean, they're convincing enough, but they're they're not um, they're not tactile. They don't create an organic being the way the Planet of the Apes films did. Um, the only times that I found, but not not Burton's Planet of the Apes. Are no, you I'm talking. About, I'm talking about the recent the ones good ones with yes, no, the I, motion I, I, capture. And it's interesting that Bur- that Burton really kind of I thought stumbled with that planet with his go. It's Planet of the Apes. And although in that one he was working mostly with costume yeah, design yeah, yeah. And, and makeup, but here it was the scenes when Dumbo got wet and like the water. Animators know how to do water so well now yeah. that that ironically added a level of realism. Whenever Dumbo got drenched, I was like, that seems like a real creature up there. Otherwise, yeah, he looks convincing. But bottom line is, it's very hard to establish the sort of connection to this animal that the kids do in the movie, which which is crucial. And so I think that's lacking. It sounds like it didn't work for you. Not for me either. And I mean, you know, I just think at at this budget level, Josh, I don't know what it is. It's somewhere between probably 130, I haven't looked it up, but 130 and 200, you know, 180 million dollars. I mean, this is, yes, you should get realistic, interesting-looking water on a, on a CGI elephant. But the problem is you just have to ask yourself the question, you know, what's the, what's the payoff for seeing this story mm-hmm. taken out of the realm of animation and into, quote, the real world, or at least, you know, a, a fantasy version of the real world? Well, none. I can't say in all honesty if I'm sure the 10-year-old me would have hated this film like I resisted, you know, this film. But I can just tell you that, you know, I think we are largely who we were as kids. And there's something about the, the, the method of attack, this sort of just cyclical peril and destruction and humiliation that just brings out everything that I don't really like about I like a lot of the original Dumbo, mainly the songs and mm-hmm. some of the grace notes of the original a lot. You know, the, the circus train, you know, the whole thing, I think, I can, I think, I can, I thought I could, I thought, you know, there's a lot of right. good quick wit in the in the original and even even scenes that are, you know, dubious and certainly dated and arguably racist, like the crows singing, you know, uh, you know, the, an elephant fly, um, you can, you can kind of look at that in the context of the times and and then look at this film and think, well, actually, uh, taking all those songs out of the musical framework that didn't help this story at all. And I, I just feel that I, I would like to sit Tim Burton down and just say, what attracted you to the material, if anything? And, you know, he even said, he just told the L.A. Times, it's funny, but I never liked the circus. You've got animals being tortured, you've got death-defying acts, and you've got clowns. It's like a horror show. What's to like? And I think he's being completely honest there. And uh-huh. he's got, you know, he's got, um, he's got that kind of aversion to the circus, which I, I can relate to. Sure. You know? Oh, yeah. I never, I grew up with it. I have no nostalgia for the old circus things like I do with other things that you could also say are probably just as well. It's all dead and gone, like vaudeville or, you know, all that kind of thing. I mean, but but this stuff, Josh, I just, I just feel like they didn't make any correct decision to get a new generation truly interested in the story. Will it be a hit? Yes. 
Well, maybe if he had doubled, <laughs> maybe if he had doubled down on that aversion to the circus, something would have been interesting in this movie if we could have sensed that. Well, and you get it on Nightmare Island. Yeah, that's because right? there's, there's an area, there's an area in Dreamland called Nightmare Island where the story inevitably goes, and they're trying to kill off. Dumbo's mother, which is yeah, thanks for that addition to the story, and and you know then you get to get you know a certain amount of what Tim Burton actually gets up in the morning for it. You know what I mean? Scaring you. <laughs> Let me suggest a few other places. I think, and there's not enough of them. Let me be clear, but that I think you can sense he his heart is in it. Maybe that's too strong of a phrase, but you sense he's interested. And one I think is. With Farrell's character, who, as I mentioned, returns from the war without an arm, I do like the parallels being drawn between Holt, who has been damaged, and Dumbo, who is born and considered to have a physical defect yeah, as no, well. Yeah, that, that basically works. And there's a really nice moment, Burton adds, where Holt has been given this awkward stuffed fake arm so that he can fit in and right. people won't notice, right? And it's almost an aside where later on, after they've gotten to know each other well, Dumbo wraps his trunk around that fake arm and tries to yank it off. You know, just a nice moment of you don't need this. Now, yeah, that's... Yeah. Kids will get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't need all the other stuff that's being amplified here agree, to, to make that sink in. And, yep. and will it be a hit? I don't know. Probably the other thing about kids' audiences is that you know they're not gonna they're really smart, but they're not gonna complain a lot either, right? How often do you take it takes a really bad kids' movie, and this does happen, where the kid will come out and be like, Boy, that was terrible. Uh you know, true. Well, especially well, the market the marketing machine is is such pretty that, strong that yeah. that you can't I think also people kids and adults have a weird reaction to um, I mean all movies are emotionally manipulative we can, sure. we can just say that but some movies it's 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 all over every second of it and this Dumbo is certainly this one of them that, but I yeah. think there's some sick thing in audiences of kids and adults that we we have this we tend to respect movies that put you through a little emotional mm. hell yeah and, and this one just been just in terms of like finding five new ways to separate to to reunite temporarily in some teary eyed way yeah you know Dumbo and his mom and then separate him again it's like it's like what is this some sort of like you know like scientific Sadistic. experiment I mean <laughs> there, there's a Transformers parallel there too because it's as long as you put someone through the ringer whether it's you know aesthetically with sound and motion and camera movement in Transformers, if you come out of that feeling like you've experienced something, yeah. then part of you might want to say it's good, even though if it wasn't very pleasant or experience. It, it was an experience. It just wasn't the right experience. <laughs> right, in my view. Right. Now, I would say with the acting, Colin Farrell's good. I think the kids, played by Nico Parker and Finley Hobbins, are, are you know good. They're not really in it in, in a really fleshed out um, dimensional way, but they're, you know, they're good picks. There's certain, there's certain things, though, that I'm, I'm starting to realize that I have... You know, I have a little, a little bit of a resistance to what Danny DeVito was up to as an actor. Oh, I liked him. Yeah, really. In this or in general or in this? Well, in this. In See, this. I thought he he underplayed this. He underplayed the material uh, way more than it's written. No, no, I'll I, Josh, I would say he underplayed the material only in relation to how uh, you're underplaying when you do uh, massacre, massacre theater. theater. No. Yeah, no. yeah. They, uh, they, on that level, yes, he underplayed. <laughs> Granted, he does uh, he does share a lot of scenes with a monkey, so so maybe that just came across right, to me right. as underplayed. But what is what is Michael Keaton really doing in this part? I'm what? going to include him and Devito and Ava Green among these grace notes. I think Burton is interested in these performances. I think the performers are having fun, and it comes through for me. Um, Keaton in particular, Devito. Okay, we'll split on that. But Keaton, there's a lot of Beetlejuice in this impresario oh, that he has. Man, fun with. I don't little, know. I didn't get that. He'll add after he says something insincerely. It's like he 
can't resist his face twists up a little bit in a way that that is the honest feeling he's having in the way that Beetlejuice was just always well, you know, and, shouting and, and, and that's a brilliant there. performance I mean I mean I, I yeah, don't want to like Keaton here and Ava Green who has been you know in a number of Burton films now I think in Dark Shadows which we mentioned was maybe right. one of the only bright spots there yes um, she has an interesting physicality to her performances that is allowed to really come to the forefront here as this trapeze artist um, who who's a para- another nice parallel I think for Dumbo and here's where I think the movie does nicely wrestle with the Ringling Brothers question hmm. by simply offering her this is a street performer that Keaton's character found in Paris brought right. her to his circus now we get a sense he's one of uh, a handful of women she kind of intimates that he keeps around him while also employing in these acts so she's trapped in a way she's trapped the way these animals are and there are a few nice moments between her and Dumbo who are both forced into the same act right. for the circus right. where you see her as a parallel and we start to get an understanding of the exploitation element. Now, that is completely undone by the epilogue where we see this, as you described it wonderfully, woke circus that DeVito stages after they've escaped from Keaton, right? right. It's kind right. of like a circus without animals, but people are dressed up as animals. I mean, maybe a nice idea, but it seems very ham-fisted way to say um, we understand that all of what we were showing before was really ugly so here's a quick two-minute fantasy to make you feel better. I, I also don't think, think that I, I mean, hey, look, look, I don't care if this is, you know, historically on point or not, but I don't think 1925 middle American audiences would sit still for a second without uh, at least some elephants being abused. I mean, they <laughs> the puppet show wasn't going to do it? Not going to do it. Last question I want to throw at you because yep. um, – Maybe this is where Burton's heart was, especially when you read that quote. And you mentioned it. This dreamland that Keaton presides over, yeah. very much like, you know, Tomorrowland or yep, Epcot absolutely. at Disney. Is there any way Dumbo is working to subvert the whole Disney enterprise taking over the world experience we're all living in. If you look at Keaton as the Disney stand-in, right. he comes in, he buys this other property, this yep. other circus, sucks it up, yep. drains the Merchandising, you see, you see the patr- patrons buying the little Dumbo, the stuffed Dumbos on the way into I mean, the act. Yep. you know, I don't know how intentional this is, but you could read Dumbo as, uh, you know, some sort of subterfuge going on I here, critiquing so. its parent ownership. I think so, and I think... You know that that works to some degree, and I think I think the design of Dreamland, which is which is kind of this great, you know, the past as it never quite was. You know, it's like Coney Island transformed into this massive Disney theme park, right? Yes. You know, but it's it's twenties, but it's also really more like late thirties looking and all. But it's, there's a lot of interesting detail in the design, and it's you know it's it's a New York skyline that that never really was. That's all fine up to a point, but. You know, I just think if if you don't get the story right, then you're just sitting there looking at the designs. And and I guess my last question to you, and then we can move on. All right, is do you do you really just as a human being, Josh? Oh wow! I'm going to presume, okay, <laughs> as well as a critic. Do you honestly look forward to decades of Disney simply for uh, because it, it will please the stockholders, dragging their animated features and repurposing them? On on screen once again as a live action project, just to see if it'll make another half a billion or billion. Well, I have a variation on what you shared at the top. Uh, you know, anything can be great. I've said that to myself after years of doing reviewing because there are days where you have the prospect of a film that you're just not excited about and you want to be surprised by it. And right. sometimes you get surprised by them, and so you that's what 
keeps you going. It's looking for those surprises. So I'm not going to write them off entirely. If I were to rank such projects at the beginning of year at my excitement level, I don't think they'd make the top <laughs> half of my list. Yeah. Uh, and I look back, I enjoyed The Jungle Book as well, but I don't think, unless I'm missing one, any of those that they've done have surprised me to a level where uh, – I want a future full of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yet here it is. We're living it. It's, it. it's here. Let's take them one at a time. Let's see what individual – try to take Disney out of it as much as we can, see which individual artists are involved mm-hmm. and what they may be able to bring to it. And maybe at the end of the day, the best we can do is find a few grace notes like this um, and hope for something really exciting in another film as a whole. Good. We can agree on that. All right. Dumbo is <laughs> currently playing in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with Michael and myself, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next up, I can't wait to find out where Michael voted in Film Spotting Madness's Elite Eight. We're going to have those results along with the Film Spotting Top 5 Movie Circus Acts. Stay with us. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. He installed himself in a rocking chair and smoked a cigar down in the evenings as his wife wiped her pink hands on an apron and reported happily on their two children. While all those assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford superfans just got chills hearing that. That's from the opening narration to Andrew Dominic's 2007 film, considered by many, many film spotting listeners anyway, to be one of the most overlooked films of the 2000s. There was a, a mini social media campaign, Michael, for this film to make its way far into Film Spotting Madness. How do you feel about the assassination of Oh, Jesse I'm James? a big fan. Huge you like fan. It too? I, I think there's a tiny, uh, a tiny drawback in that Brad Pitt is doing the best work he can possibly do, which is still not quite up to the level of anybody else in that <sighs> More film. More Brad Pitt hate. <laughs> not just... hate, just not hate, just pretty good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but I mean, some of those scenes, the way the director, Andrew Dominic, films and stages the blue-cut train robbery, Sam Shepard, wonderful. I mean, I mean, talk about a guy you just utterly believe in that time and place, Sam Shepard. Uh, uh, Casey Affleck is, is fantastic yeah. with that performance. Doesn't beg for any audience sympathy for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, I just th- there's things about that film I just I just cherish. Well, Jesse James did make a quick exit from the Film Spotting Madness tournament. Adam and I agreed with those listeners that it deserved another look especially before it goes into the incinerator. We wanted to take a look one more time. We're going to give it the sacred cow treatment on next week's show. And we're also going to share a nice tie-in here for a top five, the overlooked films of the 2000s. So maybe some hmm. that didn't even make Film Spotted Madness tournament, but movies that... Small ones. Yeah, small ones that a small group of people still cherish, but aren't otherwise as regarded 
anymore. Michael, any titles yeah, come you know to mind? Yeah, you know what film really hits, if for me, it's that definition, is Bennett Miller's Capote. That, mm. That's a film that is, you know, very unflashy in terms of technique. But for sure. It's one of the most satisfying and really, really incisive biopics I've ever seen. Philip Seymour Hoffman really, really stepped up in that picture and and I may it's I wonder if it's not just a sentimental favorite for me because I interviewed him at that time and he was talking about how freaked out he was about how much self-loathing he went through just trying to find a way not to stink in in that park as it was so unlike him and he had to get so many external things technical things right so that the performance would wouldn't just be embarrassing and he did and somehow the biggest performance he ever did turn out to be his first truly subtle one on camera, hmm. and then he and then I think it's that film that turned him into a great screen actor. And I love everything about that film. I think it, it it's just it's it's absolutely on the fence about who's culpable and and how much how much the movie really wants to ding Capote for the way he got that story and how he treated those guys. I, it's it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Well, we'll see if Capote makes either my list or Adam's list of those overlooked films of the 2000s next week. We're also going to have final four results for Film Spotting Madness and announce the championship matchup. Now, speaking of movies that got knocked out of the tournament and are headed towards the incinerator, hmm. we're also going to have a final watch for Wally, which didn't make it as far <laughs> as maybe some of us had hoped. There's one more chance to see it if you're in the Denver and Boulder area at the Conference of World Affairs. I've mentioned this a few times already on the show, but this is going to be April 9th through 13. I'll be out there in Boulder hosting for the third time Ebert Interruptus. So the series where we break down a movie scene by scene, shot by shot, if you want. People can shout out questions, comments. Roger Ebert established this many years ago, and we're going to do it with Wally, April 9th through 13. I'm going to be part of a couple of film panels at the Conference of World Affairs as well. All of this is free. So if you're in the area, um, check out the schedule. We'll post that in the show notes. And hopefully you can make it to one of those events as well as hopefully to the film spotting meetup we're going to be doing in Boulder. At our usual place, we get together every year. We have the last few years at the sink right there in Boulder. April 12 is the date. You can find details at filmspotting.net slash events and also RSVP there if you don't mind. All right, Michael, one of the great things about having you on the show is you're able to see many more films than Adam and I can fit in. And one of those is Hotel Mumbai, which is opening March 29. This is the dramatization of the 2008 terrorist attack. I want to hear your thoughts on general, but I know also in light of the New Zealand attack, it's kind of put Hotel Mumbai Giving you a different perspective on that, maybe. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, I haven't, you know, I was not even going to review it because I had problems with the film, but it's a, it came at a very uh, a busy work period where I'm just, I'm not being able to actually sit down and review everything I'm seeing. And I hadn't really considered reviewing it. And then the, the New Zealand uh, uh, attack on the two mosques that left uh, 49, 50 people dead. Um, uh, one thing, it led to the instant, but uh, they pulled the film from theaters. It had already opened in New Zealand and Australia. It's an Australian production. Uh, uh, they pulled it right away and they sort of made a determination, well, you know, the country needs a week to grieve and then maybe we'll put it back in theaters uh, a week later and see if business is any good. It's a kind of a, kind of a heartless way to look at it, but that's, that's what they did. And then I started to realize, you know what, uh, that, What's wrong with that film for me has nothing to do with having a week extra to grieve. It's just it actually makes enough mistakes that that feel really just off in general because I a lot of the reviews I read after seeing it 
uh, used the phrase crowd pleaser to describe mm. this film. Because it's got a lot of the kind of disaster movie cornball sort of beats and rhythms of like an Irwin Allen film. You know, you have you have certain characters who, you, you know, or, I mean, it's, it's a guessing game like all those movies tend to be. Uh, who's going to live and who's going to die. It's got one foot in that sort of like docudrama Paul Greengrass thing, but it's got, man, it's got a big foot in this sort of cornball disaster movie stuff. And that is not the right way to receive a story that just deals with, you know, this cyclical, constant uh, death by automatic gunfire. And I, I don't know, I, I, this is not, hmm, you know, I, 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 I just feel like every now and then as a critic for decades now, I, I just need a, as Pauline Kael used to say, a vacation mm. from the damn gunfire. And this, seeing this movie at this time and seeing the kind of movie it is, which is, you know, well-made in its way, but sort of almost completely wrong-headed. I don't know. It's not going to add to anybody's understanding about anything. Yeah. And maybe that's even more stark, you know, if it comes out right with this time. Yeah. I can yeah. see that. Kind and, of clarifying and, and, things. and many good critics, you know, people I, I respect and read pretty often, you know, are, are really in the bag for this movie. So I'm, I'm, I wonder if my position, my reaction... Uh, is an outlier or if other people feel this way. I'd love to find well, out. I think it's fair to be affected by current events and how you read a film. I think that's entirely legit. So. We're, and we're so used to it here, right? Every every two or three, we were just talking about this yes. off mic, yes. two, three times a year, we have to see a movie uh, in the wake of another school shooting or another massacre yeah. in this country or elsewhere, but especially in this country. And you just, you of course you receive action movies with a ton of you know violent death by gunfire differently that week. It is inevitable. Yeah. So if listeners do see Hotel Mumbai, it sounds like uh, could be divisive takes on this. Let I think know, so. I hope so. where you land. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I'm going to squeeze in here a quick recommendation, actually a Golden Brick nomination. I think this might be our first of the year. This is, of course, the award we give out on the show at the end of the year for a movie made by an emerging, newer emerging filmmaker, take some creative risks, unique vision, and will probably fall under the radar. So we want to give it a little bit of attention. The film I'm nominating is Starfish. It's going to be playing in Chicago, at least. It's opening at Facets here on March 29. And it's a weird little movie, but its influences for all its weirdness, are kind of obvious. So I'm going to mention a couple films here. Annihilation, Upstream Color, Donnie Darko, and then the 2010 low-budget creature feature Monsters. There's DNA of all of those (laughs) in this film. Basically, the plot involves uh, a young woman, Aubrey, played by Virginia Gardner, who has lost a friend, the death of a close friend, and she's hunkering down in the friend's apartment to mourn. The next morning, she wakes up to this apocalypse. It involves extreme climate change and, yes, toothy monsters. Um, The places this movie goes are pretty wild. I think the first-time feature filmmaker, A.T. White here, he also wrote the screenplay and composed the mournful score. I Hmm. think, you know, he's making a pretty brazen bid to be considered along those types of films that I mentioned. I don't know if it's as good as all of those, but um, it certainly pulls off some really affecting visual moments Hmm. that merge. Ultimately, this movie manages to merge music, memory, dreams, and science fiction in pretty elegant and inventive ways. I don't want to give away any of the details to that. Uh, I'll just say there is an entire section that's just animated. We break into this animated (laughs) sequence that's really well done, but also um, it's not just like a dream. It also manages to advance the action. Hmm. Um, So yeah, some really interesting things going on in Starfish. Uh, If you have a chance and 
and you're in the Chicago area and want to check it out this weekend, again, it is at Facets, opening March 29. Let me know if you think it has golden brick potential. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Go back to the shadow. Ian McKellen's Gandalf trying to hold off the Balrog in the Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship itself, well, it was in a similar do-or-die battle with Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight in Film Spotting Madness, one of the Elite Eight matchups there. Of course, as we mentioned at the top, Film Spotting Madness is our March Madness-style single elimination tournament. This year, we are doing the best films of the 2000s. Want to remind listeners... Still a lot of voting to do in this contest, so polls go live every Friday at midnight central, so really late Thursday night, and then they close the following Monday at noon. Three days you have and change to vote there. Hmm. Follow us on Twitter for updates. I'm at Larson on Film. Adam is at Film Spotting. And subscribers to the Film Spotting newsletter always get the first shot at polls. That newsletter does go out Mondays at noon. Again, you can subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Okay, let's get to those Elite Eight results. Michael, we've been doing this when we read the results, starting with the biggest blowout and working our way down to the closest margin of victory. This is the first time you've been on the show to talk madness. So as we go through these, I want your votes. You haven't yeah. you haven't been prepared for this. That's you haven't all right. seen I'm, these. Just throw me in, man. So I'm going to throw you in. That's kind of the way I like to do it, too. First up, in the Elite Eight, we had Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums versus the Coen Brothers. No Country for Old Men. Michael Phillips, where do you vote? Oh, Tenenbaums. Oh. Yeah. Without hesitation. Yeah. Tyler Vance from Kingston, Ontario, went this way. Okay, hear me out, people. Adam and Josh have opened up a whole can of worms with the Before Trilogy talk. They've linked the Film Spotting Madness universes together, meaning that by the end of March next year, only three movies will remain from three decades of film. Only three. And the first one is already a Coen Brothers classic, also known as Fargo. We need to show that these three decades weren't only represented by one set of admittedly talented directors. A vote for Tenenbaums is a vote against hegemony. Well, Michael, Tyler may have felt that way, but film spotting listeners overall went Cohen's again. No Country for Old Men won this matchup with 65% of the vote, Tenenbaum's 35%. Ooh, Sorry. Almost double. Yeah, even if you had officially voted, Michael, I don't Doesn't think Doesn't surprise would have me. I mean, there's a lot of, there's just so much, so much admiration and, and, and love for No Country that I. And rightly so. No, no, no. It's no, not no, one of your favorite no, Cohen's? No. No, no. It's it's just how many times do I have to tell yeah, you we've guys? Yeah, we've gone we've gone over this. It's just a Tony no, yes. serial killer movie. See, it's the same reason I don't like I don't love Silence of the Lambs. I, I just forgot think that it, because when you when you say <laughs> such silliness, I just let it go right out the other ear, Michael. Uh, it's brilliantly, beautifully made, and I I just don't care about it like I care about uh, things like Fargo or A Serious Man or many other well, Coens. It marches on nonetheless. Our next matchup, I want to get your vote in. Michael. Michael is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive versus mm. Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ooh, where love, are you going? Lo- love them both. Okay, this is going to be more difficult for you. Mulholland in a, in a squeaker for me. In a squeaker. Yep. Okay. What about you? Uh, I went Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. 
Okay, yeah. okay. I love uh, them both. A movie, I think, uh, I would be very happy if it stands as the best film in the 2000s. Oh, okay, cool. All right, we heard from Paul Cernak here. I told my friend as we sat down to watch Mulholland Drive, we are going to watch this. You will not like it. You will be bored. <laughs> you will be confused. And you will not stop thinking about it. I saw him a month later. Unprompted, he said, you know what? You were right. That movie was something. Good description there, Paul, I think, of the experience of watching Mulholland Drive. Very good. Phoebe over at Oxford in the UK. This is all the way from Oxford. All of my other favorite films have been knocked out of the competition. Donnie Darko, I'll never forget you. So if Eternal Sunshine doesn't win this one, I'm never listening to film spotting again, says Phoebe in Oxford. Oh, my Oxford. goodness. Yeah. That thing's just got really serious. Yeah. She, uh, she, she, it's up a notch. Yeah. John here getting very referential just shared, Mr. Lynch, meet me in Montauk. All right, Michael, do you want to read the results? Here we go. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely man of the people here. Mulholland Drive, 39%. Trounced handily by Eternal Sunshine, 61%. Eternal Sunshine, which is on as well. Okay, okay. How about Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men versus Paul Thomas Anderson's there will be blood. Oh, both damn good. Yes, they damn are. Good. Personally, good. This personally, is your vote. I committed this to, uh, on the show when I was doing Anthem movies with Tony Scott. Uh, there will be blood. Okay. As the best film of the the first decade of this century. And I stick with that. Okay. There will be blood. So you've, you've pretty much got your winner right there. Yeah. All right. Jacob in Townsville, Australia. I've smugly smirked at the don't make me pick melodrama. Until now. (laughs) When I saw Children of Men, I was immersed in the fluid camera work and incredibly detailed set design. Children of Men's premise stimulated my head and heart. This is how the sun could feasibly set on the human race, and this is how that whimper, not bang, would feel. That said, There Will Be Blood Must Survive. It offers an honest and fair look at the benefits and costs of radical self-determinism, a value that seems crucial for current Western notions of self. In my opinion, it is significantly more, sigh, important. Children of Men forecast that mankind may self-destruct. There will be blood portrayed those individual steps toward self-destruction. Very compelling case there. Very good. Yeah, I like that a lot. Michael, a tight vote. Tight vote. Children of Men, 41%. There will be blood, 59%. Okay, Australia reigns. (laughs) (laughs) Another matchup here. No, it's not Nuri Bilga Jalon's Climates. Versus Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring. Actually, it's Fellowship versus Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Mm. We heard from Bryce Maloney in Toronto. The answer to the question, why should The Dark Knight prevail over Fellowship of the Ring, is simple. Heath Ledger. His Joker is the most singularly compelling, the most memorable, and the most emotionally affecting performance of this century. Okay, Tom Fotheringham says, I see your Heath Ledger and I raise you an Ian McKellen. My vote goes to Fellowship. I like that, Tom. Here's Aaron Teachman in D.C., My own feelings on these two films are probably not to be trusted on this point, as I've betrayed them both in the past and voted for them both. Down is up, up is down, sideways is nowhere to be found. (laughs) I'm all at sea with neither master nor commander. Oh, well, this is the madness. But Fellowship of the Ring felt like a promise fulfilled at the beginning of a long journey. So I'm going to choose to linger in the light of the Shire for as long as I can. Michael. Okay, this is... How did this go? Well, it went the wrong way, but uh, <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring, 51%. Dark Knight did just squeak by Dark Knight at 48%. Major upset I mean, that in is... the tournament here. The Dark Knight was the number three seed in the tourney, and it goes down mm. to the very popular 
guess Dark Knight was popular as well. But really, Fellowship of the Ring pulling off a surprise here, 51% to 48%. All right, so we've mucked through all that nonsense. Uh, uh, that's what, what to come to the final four. Yes. What uh, What is the final four? Michael Phillips' slogan for Film Spotty Madness, we've mucked through all that nonsense. <laughs> Thank you. The final four is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind versus No Country for Old Men mm. and There Will Be Blood versus The Fellowship of the Ring. Michael, I know you're voting for Eternal Sunshine over No Country for Old Men. Yes. After your blasphemy yes, about that film. Yes. What about this other pairing here? There Will Be Blood versus The Fellowship of the Ring. No question about it. There Will Be Blood. Okay. Yeah, you didn't even have to ask it. I no, mean, I didn't have to ask I, that one either. This yeah. is this is a boring Final Four for you. For me. It's easy. There's no drama. <laughs> Not that I'm going to win any money There's on no stress. <laughs> oh, no. All you can do, we've established, is lose in Film Spotty Madness, Michael. <laughs> okay, for me... Uh, for me, for me, for me, this top one is really hard. I'm going to stick. I'm riding with Eternal Sunshine. Good. Uh, I've done it for much of the tournament. I'm going to continue to do it here, even though I think No Country for Old Men is the Coen Brothers. Second, I believe I've said. Best film. Sorry, mm. Michael. Okay. There Will Be Blood versus The Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I think I will go f- with There Will Be Blood I'm humming the gonna, Johnny Greenwood if score. If I'm going to watch one of these again, I want it to be that one. I want that one to survive yes. between these two. Yes. There Will Be Blood. All right. Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open now at filmspotting.net slash madness. Please vote. Please invite your friends. It's, despite what Michael says, a lot of fun. Okay, Michael, got a job for you. Go tell the bearded lady she's on in five. Our top five movie circus acts are next. Stay with us. I was at this carnival just a few years ago. No big deal, Ferris wheel, same old stuff, you know. And I wandered around the grounds until I found this little tent. Man outside made a speech, and this is how it went. on her belly like a reptile It was the same old line except for one part He said don't cost no money You got to pay with your heart What do you do to these men You know the same rowdy crowd that was So we usually come into a top five segment like this with a clip. Try to find something from a movie that's in the film spotting pantheon, say. You know, those titles that over the years have come up so often we've put them away, made them ineligible for top fives. But this week's top five, Michael, well, movie circus acts. It shares in common something with another top five you and I did together. Remember the notorious top five movie Manimals? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I know, yes. I know it's a highlight of your professional career. Well, and that was we, Freaks was part of that, right? Right, the chicken, the chicken woman. I believe that might have been a pick years. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. We yeah. might return to that. Well, what movie Manimals has in common with top five movie circus acts is that there's no pantheon movie that actually qualifies for this top five. Now we have about fifty titles in the pantheon, but none of them has a scene at a circus or features a movie Manimal. Now. To me, I think that says something poorly about the Pantheon. Uh, well, no wonder Ringling Brothers went out of business. I mean, I mean, circuses just don't mean anything to anybody. It could be that. 
as well. Well, without a clip from a film to get us into this list, Michael. Instead, let's listen to a voicemail we received from a listener. Good day, gentlemen. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent. I wanted to weigh in on circus acts and particular sideshow Barker Groucho Marx in 1939's At the Circus singing Lydia the Tattooed Lady. It's delightful. It's suggestive, but not that much considering, I mean, it was, it was covered by Kermit the Frog 40 years later, so how bad could it be? But it just has splendid rhymes that just make me smile. When her muscles start relaxing, up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. Come on. It's a delightful, funny, sprightly song delivered with panache, and it's probably going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day, and that's not a bad thing. So that's my call. Looking forward to hearing the show. Thanks very much. Henrik, pandering to Michael Phillips here with the Marx Brothers talk and really trying to throw Adam and I under the bus once more after our Marx Brothers marathon, where we liked some of the films, but not nearly enough for Michael, who loves them. I'm Not all of them, but yeah. Most of them. And this one? Do you love this no, one? No, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. But, but that song is fantastic. The song is fantastic. Yeah. And not on your list, though. No, it's not. But that, that song comes from the, the, the Wizard of Oz team of Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. I mean, See, it, it, this is this is why we have you on, Michael. Peak, you know, talent, yeah. No, it's a great, it's great, it's a great bit. It's the best thing in the movie for sure. Well, so like Manimals, Michael, <laughs> not a lot to overthink here when okay. it comes to this list, you know, I, unless you maybe employed a complicated strategy in making your list that you want to mention, um, go ahead and, and share all of that or just jump into your number five. The only thing, the only thing I want to say is that I, I bent the rule a, a tad to include carnival acts. Totally fair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I did that too on occasion. And also my favorite contemporary Turkish auteur. <laughs> As expected. Yes. So there may be a Jalon <laughs> Perfect. Or two. Okay. Perfect. My number five of the circus slash carnival realm, okay, is, and, and these are obscure. Most people haven't seen these, but they should. Sally of the Sawdust, D.W. Griffith film, 1925, based on an old play called Poppy. What's it, what's it known for? If anything, it's known just because it was an early big part on screen for W.C. Fields. This is a silent film. And Fields, who was a tremendously good juggler, has scenes in this film. It's a sentimental, dorky film in a plot. But it's the, the performance scenes where he's juggling. You just see, you see the fields that you, don't, you didn't know you knew. You know, mm. it's, not, it's not the old, you know, you know, red-nosed sort of, you know, like, you know, yakking at baby Leroy or Zazu Pitts or whatever. But it's, it, it's just he's so deft physically with these pins and, he's, and he turns everything into kind of a wonderful physical act. It's, it's great. Just for those scenes, and if if you're interested at all in, in seeing that stuff, because you don't know it, YouTube's full of it. If you just type in Sally of the Sawdust, W.C. Fields, you're going to get a couple of a couple of glimpses of what you're missing. So that's my number five, right? Because it's it really does feel like a hunk of a century old almost uh, piece of kind of circus or performance history. So right off the top, 
Michael, true to form, a film I have not seen. Nobody has, And Josh. And also, I thought I might have had you beat this time with a film I'll get to later from very early in the century, but 1925, I think you've got it there. There I, you go. I don't have anything that old. So there you go. My number five comes from the mid-century, actually. It is Il Mato on the tightrope in La Strada. So this is 1954, oh. Federico Fellini's definitive work, one of his definitive works, let's just say. It was at least for me one of my early introductions to world cinema. The main story here involves Giulietta Messina's Gelsomina, a waif who's purchased from her family by Anthony Quinn Zampano, a strongman. Now, my moment, the circus act that I'm choosing here, it actually involves another character, the fool. Il Matos, played by Richard Basehart. He's a clown slash tightrope walker who belongs to this traveling circus that Gelsomina and Zampano end up joining. Gelsomina first sees El Mato in a town's piazza where he's strung his line from one rooftop to another as the crowds gather far below. And it's really this piazza setting that makes this scene extra special. It gives us a sense of the, gives it an air of danger and authenticity, I think. Uh, I love the detail where they use a headlight from a car at one point yeah, to serve as the spotlight. Great. The buildings give us a clear sense of the height here. We can, you know, that's something we have context for. Um, and there's no net. It's just the crowd below. Now, Ilmato's amazing outfit, I also have to mention, because he's wearing mostly a clown's overcoat and these striped pants, but then these glitter angel wings that at least aspire to transcendence. So I love the dichotomy at play there. He walks out with a table and a chair, manages to eat a little bit of spaghetti before he slips and almost falls all the way off. <laughs> Certainly part of the act, right? Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are camera angles fudging things here. Uh, it's probably not base heart out on that rope for some of the shots, but it's still an impressive sequence. Right. The cuts back to Gelsomina, though, when she's in the crowd, I think they're crucial, too, because she's just in awe. And there's this nice moment between them after Il Mato comes down. And they seem to recognize in each other an affinity for life, an affinity for showmanship, and really foolishness, too. Because Gelsomina, of course, is something of a clown figure. So, La Strada, not a film that I've thought about in a long time, to be honest with you. So, I was I was glad to revisit it for it's, this it's list. It's a good film. It's, it's the, the the pathos are really brutally emotional and, and well, very it's not an easy sit. In context film. with what you were talking about Dumbo and ringing the audience, you know, that's something <laughs> yeah. you could maybe accuse this movie of doing as well. But it's one it's a very simple story, but there's there's a lot of elements. It's Fellini before he got very self-conscious about the mm. kind of circus world he saw the universe, you know, <laughs> I think as and um you know, it's Nina Rota's music is just stunningly good and uh, there's, there's there's a lot of reasons to see it, but yeah, it is. That's a good pick. What do you have at number four? Number four, a film older than Sally of the Sawdust. Oh, look at you. Yes, He Who Gets Slapped. I saw it at Ebert Fest in 2014. Uh, it's coming up again, Ebert Fest, uh, April 10th through the 13th. Always, always a pleasure. But that film, it's a Lon Chaney film. One year before, Lon Chaney starred in Phantom of the Opera. And he plays a man who's uh, basically ruined, disgraced, heartbroken, uh, and and basically screwed over by all kinds of people in life and love and all that. And he hides out in a circus as a result. And he becomes uh, this enormously popular circus act, a solo act, and that is the title act. He's simply somebody who gets slapped over and over and over. So it is the most masochistic yeah. almost, of all Lon Chaney's masochistic roles and the revenge this guy takes at the end you know when he finally realizes what's going on uh, is is just is blood curdling and the film is great it's it's the act is just something it blows your mind and and it makes you really it makes you actually think well are we really that 
different today when we laugh at certain kinds of painful, violent slapstick, you know. And and it's not meant to be funny in any usual way because it is just simply, you know, really uh, sinister, um, unsettling, Lon Chaney acting at its best. It's terrific. All right. And did you mention the director, Victor? Victor Sirstrom was a Swedish director who did wonderful work. And this was the first film, I think it's the first film he did in English. This was the very first film ever done by MGM. Okay. Yep. And I only wanted you to mention Victor Sirstrom so that I could try to keep up with you here. As I was Googling about <laughs> the film, I realized I, I know that director. I'm a big fan of The Phantom Carriage. So I'll just throw that out there, Michael. Yeah, okay, good. I'm, good. I'm trying to keep up. Yeah. But thanks for more homework with but that Lanch- suggestion. But Lon Chaney, easy way in. I mean, he's, yeah, the, sure, he's, of course. he's such a gripping actor. And if you, you know, we, we know the moment from Phantom of the Opera, even if you have never seen a full Lon Chaney senior film from the silent era, you know that moment where the where the phantom's unmasked yeah. you know, at the organ, right? And uh, it's a stunning moment, and this film is is got all kinds of uh, colors and shadings, and it's just, it really holds up beautifully. So see, check it out. He Who Gets Slapped. All right. At number four, I'm going with The Terrible Elephant Man Unveiled from The Elephant Man. This is David Lynch's 1980 historical drama based on the life of Joseph Merrick. I, I think in the movie he's, he's called John Merrick. Um, but this is uh, a man whose physical deformities, they made him notorious both on the carnival circus and in the medical community in London in the late 1880s. Lynch offers a really, an extremely empathetic take on this story, and it centers on the relationship between Merrick, who's played by John Hurt, and the surgeon who rescued him from an abusive carnival showman. The surgeon's played by Anthony Hopkins. So they first meet in The Elephant Man in this basement hovel where Merrick is being kept, and the showman, who is played by Freddie Jones, he stages this meeting as if it was part of the circus act, burnishing Merrick's appearance with this horrible legend. Life is full of surprises. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant. Struck down on an uncharted African isle. The result is plain to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. Now, for listeners, that probably sounds theatrical and dramatic, but the visuals going on communicate something entirely differently. This is the first time in the movie we see Merrick in full, and it's key that Lynch does it in this dismal setting. So he's stripping away the carnival atmosphere and anything that might suggest entertainment uh, so that the showman's words really ring hollow. Uh, The exploitation, the mistreatment, it all becomes stark and infuriating that way, and it firmly makes us understand Merrick's plight. Uh, Notice also in this scene uh, that rather than linger on Merrick and his deformities, the camera cuts to Hopkins' face to catch his astonishment and then these welling tears. So I think by undercutting the showman in this scene, Lynch makes us feel the same way about Merrick. That's a great scene. And, and I haven't seen that movie in a long, long time. That It was a real risk to, for, for the producer, Mel Brooks, of all yes. people, to give David Lynch 
coming off a racer head, uh, you know, a shot at, at, at that kind of material. And it turned out to be a really inspired pick. And isn't there a story about Brooks leaving his name off of either promotional material or maybe when it was they were undergoing an Oscar campaign, something because he didn't want it to have that association of comedy yeah, with no. this sort of project. It, it was smart about that too, and I think I think the the producing entity was called Brooks Films, so it was not okay. it was not Mel Brooks Presents or anything yeah, like right. That. Yeah. yeah, there's one scene in that film that, that always bugged me, and it's the scene where the for Freddie Jones and his evil Carney associates come in and torment the hell out of, of Merrick in the hospital, and that that scene I think is actually. You can accuse that scene of the exploitation that mm, uh, that the Jones character yeah. <laughs> rightly deserves, but but that's the only scene like that in the film. There is a tension in it you can feel between Lynch's aesthetic and interests and this more traditional prestige drama yeah, that it yeah, wants to be, right, and right. I think it kind of does vacillate back and forth. But the great moments where you get pure Lynch really work well. Yep. So we're at our number three picks, Michael. What is your number three movie circus slash carnival act? I love this one uh, called Nightmare Alley, nineteen. 19- 47, Tyrone Power, Joan Blondell, and it's it's a really seedy film noir about this guy who who uh, infiltrates basically this traveling circus act, and it's full of kind of phony mind reading and all sorts of things. But there's this whole business where at the beginning of the film, you're you're you're, you're you're presented uh, more or less off camera with the specter of the circus geek, which was a tradition of like you know, this 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 horrible kind of man beast, um, sometimes costumed with extra hairs. But usually in real life, geeks were you know just usually the, the, was the lowest of the low in terms of the jobs that the worst dissolute alcoholics or <laughs> would take. And and the whole thing about was biting the heads off live chickens and eating them, right? And so like Tyrone Power who's you know, this sort of smooth matinee idol type at the beginning says, oh, lowest of the low. You know, what What would bring a man so low? Of course, he becomes, at the end of the film, a circus geek. And and that 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 whole that whole journey of this guy's descent into his own weaknesses and faults, and and that that's the end of it. But I, I, I love it because it's 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 a film people don't know. If you knew Tyrone Power, he was he was absolutely you know this sort of dashing leading man. And when you see Tyrone Power at the end of this film, <laughs> rung low, not without a lot of. Uh, heavy uh, melodrama, but just with these really haunted close-ups, and the guy's clearly devastated by how low he's fallen. It's a great use of a really dubious piece of circus history, the circus geek. Yeah. So Nightmare Alley, great title as yeah. well. Yeah. And Joan Blondell, you mentioned, yeah. is that uh, fantastic actress in it? She's great. And you know, Blondell was doing all kinds of musicals in the '30s, and this is a little later, '47. I mean, yeah, you know, she her career had sort of gone a little bit sideways at this point, and. Uh, there's a lot of desperation in this movie that comes from not just the story, but I think the people's careers. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's the name really jumps good. out at me because um, we just wrapped up our Cassavetes marathon, and so she's supporting part in opening night as the playwright. Joan oh, right, Rondell. that's right. So, of course, yeah, 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 we went yeah, much, much further along in her career. Yeah. But. but if you if you want to, and it's not it's not like Todd Browning's Freaks, where you're seeing mm-hmm. close up. Horrible, horrifying images of a circus geek, real or imagined, but but it's it's a great metaphoric use of like exactly how low uh, a fallen man can fall further. Still, <laughs> Todd Browning's freaks might come up, but not just yet. Okay, my number three, I'm going to go with Dumbo, and it's Dumbo's flight, that climactic moment in the 1941 animated original where the little elephant is expected to perform this death-defying jump from the top floor of this burning building facade. That's in the big tent, 
and land onto a trampoline. Instead, at the last moment, he does fly. What I like about this is, as a piece of animation, really, it's crucial to the narrative, of course, but you get a real sense of the height because of the animation here. It's very tactile. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how there's forced perspective to make it seem like they're 10 stories up yeah. when they look down inside this circus tent. And also the sound design, the crowd and the circus music, all that gets turned down when we're up there with Dumbo. So it seems like it's coming from way far below. And of course, the flight itself, you know, has a little bit of drama there. Dumbo drops the magic feather that he thinks enables him to fly. And then he does zoom up of his own power just before hitting the ground. I think why this flight is so affecting too is that it's not only a relief in the moment that he doesn't crash, but it's also this rare moment of pure joy in a film that really otherwise emphasizes sadness. Right, lays on and yeah. sorrow. You too heavily for you. I think it's I think it's an interesting distinctive for the original film. I had forgotten how sad this was until I watched it again. And I you know, they committed to that. Yeah. Whether it's baby mine, um, and the the separation between Dumbo and his mother, or just the the dark blues that dominate the visual aesthetic of this movie, there's not a lot of joy here until we do get this one circus act scene yeah. that kind of lifts your spirits I'd actually say the pathos and the comedy or the or whatever the various tones and moods of this thing are actually are actually pretty pretty shrewdly balanced in that in that film and I think the reason that scene you're talking about is so effective is that we don't see any intimation of flight until that moment now in the in the burden remake there's little little bits of uh, oh he's flying a little bit and the kids see this long before the adults do right and and so ten fifteen minutes in he's already flying a little and I think that sort of lessens the impact yeah that could be how about your number two Michael my number two is uh, more famous than the other ones for me it's Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train from 1951 hey, hey I've hey. seen this hey it's a great film <laughs> yes it great is great film and there's a there's a sequence that is the prelude to a really uh, startling moment where it's the it's the murder of the woman who's causing all the trouble for the tennis player played by Farley Granger so his unfortunate acquaintance played by Robert Walker. The scene is a small town fairground, and the woman is out, uh, out out just for a good time with two of the local guys, and the Walker character is sort of is, is basically stalking her from a distance, uh, and it's you know it's it's a scene where they kind of go into the tunnel of love, which uh, is is all done in this sort of like creepy shadow play, and you think the murder's happening in the tunnel, but it's just sort of a scream unrelated to that, and then the murder comes on the on this grassy area where they're alone. And it's it's all refracted through the lens of her eyeglasses as they hit the ground, and it's a, it's a great it's a, that's a really striking sequence. Uh, um, but the whole atmosphere of this small town fairground just changes like very slowly as you get through the tunnel of love and then out. And that whole two three minutes really well makes me want to never go to any carnival ever. You know, I don't care tunnel of love. Tunnel of hate. It's all the same to me. Night or day. <laughs> At this point, it doesn't matter. Good scene. It's a really good scene. And the buildup is really masterful. Yeah. yeah. And as you're describing it, it makes me realize uh, Jordan Peele's Us, many references in that film, chock full of them. Uh, I don't know if this is one that was explicitly intended, but man, the tunnel of love and that house of mirrors that opens the film. Which is so good. Which is so good. So good. Some similarities there. As you're describing it, I had the same feeling while watching the opening of Us. All right. My number two, you've already brought it up, Todd Browning's Freaks. I'm going with a moment 
where Prince Randian lights a cigarette. So like the elephant man, I think this 1932 melodrama inverts exploitation. Um, It moves the audience, or at least hopefully, I think it's trying to move the audience from morbid curiosity to something more akin to empathy. Uh, And part of that is Todd Browning, the director, his choice to never show the title figures. It's interesting how, how you mentioned what you do see in Freaks because so much of our imagination comes into play. He never really shows them performing their sideshow act. We see them a lot, and all of these characters are played, we should note, by actual real-life sideshow performers. Um, They're never displaying themselves before an audience actually performing their act. So it's similar to what Lynch is doing when he unveils Merrick outside of the carnival atmosphere. Instead, what we get are a lot of these vignettes of what everyday life is like for these decidedly abnormal people. Uh, We get to know their personalities, their challenges, their dreams. And we do, in that context, we do still get to see their talents. So I think this is where some of the imagery does work its way into, uh, into our minds because in this instance, we see Prince Randian, who's legless, armless. He's billed as the living torso in the movie. And he, this was a man who actually performed on Coney Island for decades. In this sequence, he's in conversation with someone and rolling or lighting his own cigarette, again, without arms or legs, using only his mouth. And it's just part of his everyday life. But for him, it's common. For us, it's an astonishment, right? Yeah. It is It is a, an act in a way, but it's not like meant to be gawked at the way it would be at the carnival. Um, and I think there's an, a crucial distinction going on there. I think it lends the performers in Freaks and, and the whole film really this clever sort of dignity that you might not normally associate with it or certainly not expect from it. Right, right. That film was just too much for people then. I mean, it was pulled from release. It was just it, – it was really – and it was a huge flop with audiences. It just, it just was too much for people. <laughs> and what does happen in the climax, you could say maybe straddles that line differently where the sideshow performers enact revenge yes. on one of their own. The scary, for rainy exploiting nights. them. Yeah, and and yeah. they are depicted monstrously there. Yeah. So, so that maybe does sort of switch th- things up a little bit. But, but up to that point, I think we see them very differently and maybe – Maybe that blends in a little bit with how you read the ending too. So. Yeah, no, that's a the film is really it's not an ambiguous film, but it's a it's a wildly contradictory one in terms of how it's using these people, as you say, and and um, uh, it's got man, I mean, it, it's got it's got brute force going for it uh, in, in ways that that most films today can't even touch. Yeah. yeah. All right, our number one picks were there, Michael. What did you have at the top of your I list? I had to go with Lola Montez, Max Ophel's 1955 film. Uh, it's which was restored about ten years ago, and it really looks gorgeous in this really bright, vibrant cinemascope. Now you can, and that's the way you can see it on Criterion. Uh, it, 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 the entire film is framed as a circus act, and it's a presentation of this famous, notorious fallen woman's life and her, you know, unbelievable sexual and romantic escapades and all these liaisons she's had uh, through her life, and it's based on a historical character. It's, it's a, it's a marvelous use of. Of metaphor, and it's you know, frankly, it's it's almost a little obvious now. It's not my favorite Old Fools film, but it is it is something that just immerses you in this circus idea and the idea of celebrity on display and the way she ends. And this is, I guess, if I had to pick one image that really I'll never forget about it, and it is the last minute of the picture where she's in a literal gilded cage, 
and she's being wait, basically being set up and waiting to be pawed by a line, a long line of of paying customers, men, and it's it's a. It's a really harsh ending, but it's also strangely beautiful because Ophuls is such a genius with the moving camera. He's doing this slow pullback where you see these basically two lines of men kind of moving into the tent and we're moving out and then the curtains close. And that's that's kind of the one act of empathy or dignity we can give this moment or this woman. And Ophuls is just such a master at tying all that up and, and, and frankly using the circus just like he uses all kind of theatrical artifice in his movies. It's a way of thinking thinking about how we present ourselves in life. And, you know, Peter Ustinov is playing the, the circus ringmaster. Uh, it's a good performance. It's, it's not a kind of a big emotional hook, the movie, but it's, it's just metaphorically there's never been a grander leap that any major director took. So that's why if, if the whole damn movie's about a circus act, that's my number one. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It, it's probably my number six. I really, oh, really? Close call. really like Lola Montez and the colors, right? The, the garish greens in these circus scenes and these sort of bruised purples. And blues. I think this was Ophel's first film in color, and uh, he just goes crazy with it, and and it right. works. It works right. perfectly, in you know, to to create that atmosphere that you're talking about. So great pick. Glad to see that on your list. I have to ask one thing. Yeah. Why are so many of these picks and so much of film history indebted to the dark side of the circus and the carnival? I think world? it goes back to what you, you know, you brought up when you quoted Burton speaking to the LA Times about Dumbo and saying he never liked the circus. I mean, I think everyone, and you said yourself as a kid, it was sort of this, um, this was my experience. I remember there was an element of revulsion um, tied in with the the wonder at seeing something like a trapeze artist or a tightrope walker. There's maybe a revulsion to it where um, it's clowns, of course. I mean, clowns are always an issue, I think, for most people. Right. Um, But maybe even as a kid, you're detecting with what's going on with the animals that there's something not right there. Yeah. I you was, know, and you, you I, like, right. it's amazing to see it, an elephant that close, but also maybe even as a kid, you understand this is not how it's supposed to be. And so that all gets mixed up together to this ball of, we don't know what to do with the circus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I remember certainly in film and in other contexts, I enjoyed the hell out of just pure acrobatics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, human, you know, especially if it involved like teeter totter, you know, flips yeah. and, yeah. and trapeze stuff. And all, but I, I never had any. Once so, you had clowns, once you had cage, add caged beasts, it gets a little. Well, and also just it's sort of that whole pushy. You know, are we having fun yet? And you know, mm, like, oh yeah, you know, oh. you know, the cynic in me was always like, you know, just back off. Pal. The blaring, the blaring yeah. um, need to entertain. Yes. Yeah, and I think so. Maybe that's what movies are digging into, and that's why our lists look like this. Though, at my number one, I think I have a moment that's mostly mostly joy and. It also brings us full circle. I'm going back to my number five pick of Lestrada with another tightrope act here. Hmm. It's Charlie Chaplin in 1928's The Circus. Uh, of course. This is where the tramp has to serve as the emergency understudy for the usual tightrope walker. I'm just going to link to this scene because you absolutely have to watch this, and I can't describe it in any way that'll do it justice. I'll just say it involves a safety rope that fails unbeknownst to the tramp and you know there are animals involved some mischievous monkeys come into play so you know we're getting maybe into that creepy territory here but they're not CGI here. monkeys oh they are not no, CGI monkeys aren't. at all uh, again I'm sure there's sleight of hand in the camera work uh, but there's also real balancing being done and, and all sorts of expert physical comedy what can't be faked is the gallant naivete that the tramp always has 
but is literally heightened in this scenario. He, I mean, he walks out on that line without a care in the world, as if it's exactly where he belongs, <laughs> even though we all know otherwise. And then, of course, that becomes amplified uh, after these attempts to retain his dignity when things get increasingly out of control, um, even before the monkeys come into play. Now, in the Film Spotting newsletter that went out earlier this week, our producer, Sam Van Hogren, was teasing this top five, and he linked to this sequence and said it would be hard to beat. Indeed, it is my number one. It just combines the physical dexterity of a circus act with Chaplin's touch for hilarity. What more could you want? No, it is. That's a great pick. And and that's that's it's a great film. The people don't know as well as the one that preceded it, The Gold Rush, or the one that followed it, City Lights. I mean, it's the circus is not as well known today. It's not. And maybe that's why I hadn't seen it till I was researching for this list. But yeah, it does come at a very interesting point in his career. Uh, but you're right. I had not seen, I've seen The Gold Rush. I've seen his later films, had not seen this yet. So I was glad I was able to catch up with it. All right, Michael, I mentioned Lola Montez made my honorable mentions list. I'll get to a few others, but do you have a few you want to throw out there first? I mean, the obvious one, I guess, is yet another silent. And this is a silent, heavy list for good reason, I think. But The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1919, is, you know, a great— Oh, good one. I mean, you know, you have great, great—just the, the hypnotism, the, uh, you know, just, just the whole atmosphere. It's, it's right next door to the insane asylum, which is, in fact, a part of the story. But I don't want to give it all away. No, but no it, spoilers uh, on a 19— 19, 19, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one of a— kind expressionist really experiment and and the circus and the and this sort of dark side of the carney world is is absolutely part and parcel so that that's that's kind of an obvious one yeah like, that's a great one i too. love it I'll mention a, a couple others quickly because I, I did do a fair amount of watching of films that popped up as potential titles for this list that didn't end up making it. Seven Faces of Dr. Lau mm-hmm. would be one of them. Tony Randall. A lot of circus acts in that. A lot of Tony Randall. Too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. I know people love this this George Powell fantasy, but um, yeah, I couldn't take that much Tony Randall. Didn't quite make the cut. How about Roustabout, the Elvis film? Elvis. Where he with the, with the cycle. Joins, yes, joins the circus. Uh, I'm afraid his his musical numbers there not as enjoyable for me as the ones in like Blue Hawaii. So <laughs> I couldn't put Roust about on the list. This list, Michael, if nothing else, it gave me the occasion to finally watch my first Bela Tar film, Workmeister Harmonies, which you I know, always I've never knew. seen that. I've okay. seen I've seen two or three Tars, but not uh, three I or four, kn- but not that one. Well, I knew in the back of my head it somehow involved a, a circus of some sort. And indeed, there's this traveling show that comes to this small Eastern European town uh, in the 1980s, and essentially, it's a gigantic whale carcass that's being carted around and uh, this mysterious prince figure. So not a ton of circus carnival stuff in it, but a fascinating film. Definitely am a fan now of Belatar. That slow rhythm filmmaking that he does is uh, you know right up my alley. So I'm glad I had a chance to see that. Didn't quite make the list, however. All right, two more quick ones. The Trapeze Act in Wings of Desire with Solvig Dorn. Oh, yeah. yeah Definitely good. thought about that. And Zac Efron and Zendaya, their trapeze act in The Greatest Showman. Michael, the only good thing about that film, maybe? <laughs> too soon. Too soon. It's to, been too soon for The Greatest Showman. To I talk about. I can't properly assess it. You've not, yeah. you've not recovered yet. Okay, fair enough. Michael, that brings us to the end of our show. Listeners, if you still want more, head over to filmspotting.net. That's where you can find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's also where you can vote 
in the Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s tournament. Right now, we're down to the final four. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt, head over to filmspotting.net slash shop where we have t-shirts and other merchandise. And if you want to follow us on social media, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. If you want that weekly Film Spotting newsletter in your inbox, just subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. All right, opening up this weekend, Dumbo, definitely not recommended by Michael Phillips. Yes. A strong no. Right. I think he's... There's a few nice things. A in little it, harder. I, I, I think, think he's no. I think you're. I think you're probably right. Might want to avoid Dumbo. In limited release here in Chicago is Hotel Mumbai, which Michael mentioned he does have a few issues with. This is about the 2008 Taj Hotel terrorist attack in Mumbai. It stars Dev Patel and Army Hammer. Starfish is a small film that I'm nominating as a potential Golden Brick candidate. It's about a girl grieving for the loss of her best friend on the day the world ends as we know it. It is playing at Facets in Chicago. And one more limited release here, Sunset. This is from Son of Saul director Laszlo Nemes, a period film set in pre-World War I Budapest. Next week, Adam's back. I'll be here as well. We're going to talk top five overlooked films from the 2000s, a tie-in with our Sacred Cow review of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and we will have those Film Spotting Madness final four results and let you know the championship matchup. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ. Org. Michael, thank you for indulging us in another somewhat silly top five. And no, of, of course, the, the... No, nothing silly. I'm haunted by the picks. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad for that. <laughs> well, definitely silly film spotting madness. Glad that you could join us for that. If listeners want to find some more of your reviews, where can they do that online and where can they find you on Twitter? There's no if if they want to. I mean, they're going to want to look at chicagotribune.com slash movies. I'm on Twitter at Phillips Tribune. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here with you right now. They can come by the studio if they want in the next couple of minutes here at the studio down on Navy Pier. They can come by. You ever been to Navy Pier? Oh, come on we, down. Are we going to sit here for a while yeah, now? We'll, when we're no, done? we got to wait. We got to wait now. We'll wait till the, through the weekend. Okay. It's a promise. Michael, at least, will be here. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.